AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Uh, Matt, you picked up a story about the progress we're making in firmware, right? Uh, so it's more of a story about the progress we're not making yeah, in firmware. I think that's enough. a more accurate way of saying it. Um, so Sarah Zatko and her team at the Cyber Independent Testing Lab um, released some information at a, sort of a talk during um, DEF CON and Black Hat time in, in Las Vegas, uh, Hewlett Foundation. Um, and the, the gist of the data that they were able to come up with is that firmware security is really not where it ought to be. And no real progress has been made in the last couple of years either. Um, so what they did is they, they took a whole bunch of different firmware binaries, um, around 6,000 versions, and they, they said about 3 million binaries, give or take. And they ran automatic code analysis against them just to see um, if the, the common sorts of defenses you might put in when you're, when you're writing code are there. Actually, more, it's more accurate to say the kinds of defenses you might put in when you're compiling code. Um, because when you write code, uh, a lot of the compilers that you can choose will have features that they can automatically add to the code for you. Things like uh, data execution prevention or uh, non-executable stacks, uh, address space uh, layout randomization, a long list of things that a, a compiler can automatically add to your code to make it harder to exploit the code, to sort of move things around, make it much more difficult for an attacker to write a reliable export against this firmware. Okay. Which you would think is something that is, you know, pretty easy to do, and the, for the payout you get, you, you may as well be doing it. You know, network devices, you expect there to be some level of an attempt to be secure, and when research shows that, that it doesn't appear that we're even trying, it's, it's kind of concerning and surprising to me, at least. Is it that we're, they're patching for known things, but not innovating? That's kind of the way mm. it seems to me. They're not kind of get, doing anything to get out ahead of security issues, but there is some reactionary. I would, I would say that they're, they're simply not doing it. And I don't think that they're even getting out ahead of anything. From, if anything, the, the data shows negligible changes between the start of the, the measurement period and the end of the measurement period. And this is across like 18 different vendors. Wow. Um, the, when, you, when we talk about vulnerabilities, though, we should be clear. Um, the way that they tested this was only uh, limited to the sorts of things they could do at scale. We're talking, you know, three million samples here. Um, they couldn't look for, say, stored passwords in each one because they'd have to hunt and peck and find how those passwords were stored, or they didn't find actual vulnerabilities. What they did look for was whether or not the code had the, uh, the characteristics that would indicate that a certain protection was built in during compilation. Okay. It's a, it's a very important difference there because they're not actually like trying to find vulnerabilities. They're trying to find the, the sort of things that you would compile in if you were compiling for a desktop or, or another more, and I hate to say more mature platform because again, firmware isn't a new thing. It's just that it seems that all the stuff that we would normally do compiling for desktops or laptops or other um, non-IoT platforms are simply not being done. I think that's the gist of it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the article comments just in general how kind of from the bottom up there's issues going back to you know, the curriculum when you're taught maybe that low-level programming, you know, how to put some of these protections in. Uh, even just simple, you know, compile flags, right? So it almost seems like maybe there's not the standard coding practices where organizations, uh, you know, require or recommend that you use certain compile flags, which, which I think they commented would, would address a lot of these vulnerabilities. I mean, is this surprising to you guys, or do you think this is just sort of to be expected? Um, I think 
I'm more used to hearing about firmware vulnerabilities from an actual vulnerability standpoint, like someone finds one or a handful at a time. Um, and I kind of assumed that some work had gone into you know, yeah. creating these, these exploits against the vulnerabilities. I hadn't really considered the fact that these sorts of defenses hadn't been put in place. Because let's be fair, some of these things you can get around. You, know, you can get around DEP, you can get around ASLR certain ways. Um, but I was I was kind of expecting that some of these things would have been yeah and put in maybe maybe that's just me though yeah I mean Mike you're a developer do you think this could maybe go back to sort of how unexciting refactoring your code is you know like we have a piece of code that works and a lot of times you inherit it from somebody you know the the refactoring and adding new flags that's not the most exciting work do you think that's kind of this is sort of like a grand scale example of that. Yeah, I mean, it could, it could be a few things. I mean, this is obviously, you know, we think about the stack, and we, we tend to focus on vulnerabilities, like, you know, up the stack, right? Uh, this is really low-level programming. You're getting down, you're interfacing with hardware, um, and, you know, you're writing typically things in, you know, in C or assembly, and, and, and like Matt said, those, those compile options are important. So you always understand not just what you're doing, um, but, you know, what, what's the best way that you can add these protections? I mean, we hear a lot about, like, hard-coded passwords when we think about some of these lower-level vulnerabilities. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a bigger problem of just understanding, you know, when you're developing that low, exactly what you're doing and, and what are the, kind of the best practices uh, that you really need to be thinking about. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of it is just sort of, you know, the the mentality of, of uh, programming. You know, it's... It's what's new and flashy, and if it's there's stuff that's you know low level assembly, that's probably you're you know I could see how you need to something needs to break before it gets fixed because yeah. you know it shouldn't be, but I could oh, yeah. I could and I could see that. The way I see it is more like you know you can there's always going to be some adversary who's better at doing what they do than you are at defending, and that's fine. I right. get that you're still striving to do your best, but silly things like if you when. To use a metaphor, you leave the house, you lock the door, or you're right. driving in the car and you wear a seatbelt. These are things that you should be doing sort of instinctively or without a second thought. You know, you, right. you put the locks on things and you make sure that you remember to lock them. Um, does that prevent someone from breaking into your house? Not necessarily, but at least it raises the bar a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it probably also speaks to the testing and red teaming, that kind of, you know, internal, you know, taking a look at what you're prepared for, right? I think if you're a developer and you have the ability to use the secure flags that are available to you, you know, enabling ASLR and, and DEP and, and other things that have been around for a long time from a, a desktop laptop, regular like x86 environment sort of standpoint, um, you should already be compiling with these flags if you're writing code. Hey Mike, it sounds like somebody found uh, a vulnerability in Webmin, but it may have been intentionally placed there. What can you tell us? Yeah, so there, there's a recent uh, remote code execution vulnerability that was discovered in Webmin. And Webmin's uh, an open source, uh, web-based uh, Linux system admin tool that you can use. Uh, affected versions 1.882 through 1.921, uh, and it was presented at DEF CON. Uh, interestingly, there was no previous disclosure uh, to the maintainer, so it's kind of the first they had heard about it. Uh, DEF CON, they showed a, a Metasploit module that was developed and some proof of concept where you can actually execute uh, commands as root, and they even showed a reverse shell. So they had some, some code that actually showed this live. 
the flaw is actually in one of the modules for uh, changing passwords. So it's a feature that lets you go in and change your password uh, prior to it expiring um, and allow this, an unauthorized user, again, to run these arbitrary commands as root. Um, one thing to note, though, is that reset feature is not part of most default configurations outside of version 1.890 is kind of when, when that was actually set as default. Uh, if you look on Shodan, recently there was about 215,000 Internet-facing webmin instances, uh, and they found as of uh, publication there was about 15,000 running at that, that vulnerable version, that 1.890. Uh, and it was out on um, SourceForge. All the official downloads included this vulnerability for a, a, over a year. Uh, and and kind of like you, you mentioned, uh, one interesting, probably the most interesting uh, part of this is that the vulnerability was not found in any of the code in the GitHub repository, and they suspect that it was planted actually uh, in the build infrastructure. So as, as the software was built and delivered is when someone went in and, and put that, uh, that back door in. And um, they're still investigating, so they don't have a lot of details of how that happened. Uh, but clean builds against the code for all those versions didn't result in any vulnerable versions. Wow. So let's talk about the, that difference. I think that's a key thing to bring up is that the source code itself doesn't include the vulnerability, but the compiled version of it did. So, so who's building it and, and where that this was introduced? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a lot of details on what their pipeline is. Um, but again, they were kind of investigating how it went through. I mean, we, you see Jenkins use a lot, a lot of uh, public um, free compiled tools that go through and, and eventually publish that out to, to hosting sites like, like SourceForge. So they're, they're looking to see when possibly uh, this was injected. Oh, that's interesting. So how would that work? Would you download, re-download the source and then recompile privately and then release it? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple probably injection points, you know, you can have, you can have along the way. It probably depends, again, on the details of, of when they kick off a bill, but you could, again, inject it in some malicious uh, Jenkins server. Um, someone could have somehow you know, um, you know, have a shim before it gets published out to the to the, the repository that it's hosted on. Um, it's certainly uh, you know alarming, right? That you know we we talk a lot about about code, and typically that's where you find you know ninety nine point nine nine percent of the flaws. But in this case, uh, you think about kind of your your uh, build process, you know, supply chain. You know, we see that sometimes show up, um, and it's you know you really have to pay attention, kind of end to end. Uh, and, and do some validation after you've, you've posted your, uh, your your production code. Wow, so that's that's kind of interesting for <laughs> for a bunch of reasons. Uh, but the one that keeps coming to mind is like everyone keeps saying that one of the best ways to improve software is to make sure that it's open source and that the right. code can be reviewed. Right. Now. That, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that the build process is open source and can be reviewed by anyone, but in this case, it suggests that maybe that's something that should happen as well. If you build it the right way, the, the sort of expected way that is out there, it's just, it seems like this is sort of, you're kind of sidestepping the regular build process, right? Well, I guess what's, that's the question. What's the regular build process? Because some folks are just going to want the binary version, right? Some people... Right, yeah. I realize we're talking about admins here, but right. not every admin knows how to compile code, I suppose. Right. Um, and I know that I've downloaded stuff that I could have built from source had I wanted to, um, but I chose to use somebody else's compiled version. And Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Once there's malicious compiled code, it's it's a different animal. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So. yeah. Because you, you're right. You yeah, can I mean, see you can see the 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 in the Git 
and you can see the code, and that's not where the problem is. Mm -hmm. It's that somebody else kind of sets you up to fail, right? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. You know, that's curious. Is there more than one? Was there more than one place to get the webmin compiled version? I mean, is it maybe that only certain? Yeah, because you mentioned SourceForge, which is one possible place of getting it, but I imagine the code is available many, many places. Yeah, so it mentioned the official downloads, which typically are hosted on GitHub also, right? If you go onto the releases kind of tab, um, you can download directly from there. Or, yeah, again, you can have a third-party hosting like SourceForge. Um, but one comment interesting, you know, that kind of Joe brought up is, you know, you, you typically, or it's depending depending on how software is built, you typically go in through the Git flow and you can see it kicked off a build and what, you know, what processes it went through. Um, but you don't actually know, know if that's what, executable is uploaded to the releases page, right? There is several places I think there is opportunity. Again, each, each project is probably different in how they build, but uh, where, you know, potentially something gets injected that kind of takes it off the, uh, the official route. So what would you recommend people do? Well, I think one big thing is obviously, you know, you, you have to check your, your builds. Uh, maybe certainly given, given this incident, uh, review your entire pipeline. Uh, make sure you understand, you know, every step, whatever tools you're using. A lot of them tend to be free for open source projects. Um, and just, you know, understand and, and validate uh, that, that the, the build that you create is what you expect um, getting posted for everybody. I wonder, is there something that could be done to sort of hash the compiled code to, to verify that it didn't, nothing was injected? Yeah, I mean, that typically changes per build. Um, so you, if, if this was injected through their official build pipeline, you know, the hash that gets presented on the, the releases page is going to match, right, what was, what was published. Um, so it would be difficult to, to have one standard hash. Yeah, it might be an area for some, some automated error checking, but interesting. Anyway. Yeah. I've heard of something called reproducible builds, which is sort of a way of doing a control build of software so that... Um, you can actually have a signed version with a hash somewhere, and then you build it yourself, and you match oh. up the hashes and the signature, and you say, yeah, good. It built exactly the way I expected to, and there's no extra anything in there. Uh -huh. But if you're building the code yourself, I mean, for your platform and for the libraries you've got, you know, it becomes harder uh, to do something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a goal to aim for, yeah. um, but I feel like in a real environment, it becomes very, very difficult to actually do that. Or you'd have to have, like, multiple different reproducible build versions with, you know, this flag and that thing and that set. Right. And all the different <laughs> combinations thereof. But, you know, maybe we'll get there. You're always told, you know, open source, get the most eyes on it, the most contributors, the most people checking for problems. Well, if the, the posted open source code is legit and then the compiled code isn't, you know, where you got to kind of question where the process breaks down. I realize that it is convenient to have com code that's already compiled and simply run it, but I guess this, this case shows that you can't always trust pre-compiled code. So Joe, you have a story about several flaws in implementations of the HTTP2 protocol? Yeah, so eight CVEs were filed against the HTTP2 protocol, which it's actually somewhere between 25 and 40 percent of websites are now in HTTP2, so uh, pretty significant. Um, but basically, they're all variants of DOS, you know, uh, denial of service attacks that can be done. And, um, you know, 
uh, ping floods, reset floods, settings floods, uh, any way that you know a command a flood of commands can kind of overwhelm the protocol and you know and clog up the resources that will prevent it from responding to regular good traffic standard DDoS. Uh, kind of activity, but you know, a good amount of them were found by Netflix. Uh, seven of them were found by Netflix, and uh, one from uh, a gentleman from Google. So you know, pretty pretty intense amount of of flaws found in this one protocol. Uh, CERT put out an announcement, kind of detailing each CVE and how it can be done. You know, whether it's the you know a ping flood or uh, you know, altering the header commands. Mm -hmm. um, and then also they put out a pretty good matrix of all the different vendors. There's I think 200, 200 or more than 200 vendors that are uh, susceptible. Most of them have put out patches, but you know, the CERT did a good job of kind of detailing exactly what vendors are part of this um, kind of host of, of vulnerabilities. So, yeah. um, you know, Fairly comprehensive set of flaws here. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Um, I'm. I think this is really interesting, specifically because it's a protocol level vulnerability. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 wild because I, I hadn't seen too much about HTTP2 attacks before this, um, but it sounds like that many vendors. It sounds like the 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 protocol itself has yeah. the flaws in it. It's not like, you know, one person's implementation of it. It's it's everybody's implementation because they all tried to follow the the spec. Right. And the some of the logic I saw there is that, you know, HTTP2 is supposed to be a more complex, more feature-rich yep. version of HTTP. Well, the more complex you are, the more ripe you are for bugs, for backdoor, you know, for any kind of, you know, you know, if HTTP was simpler and it didn't do all this threading and everything, but now you've kind of opened up your way for more uh, more vulnerabilities. So. Yeah, like you mentioned ping flood. When I think ping, I think like TCP or ICMP ping, but apparently you can ping within HTTP2 by itself, which yeah. I had never heard of. So You're not sure you would need to. I, I, apparently somebody <laughs> thought it was necessary, or yeah. like there's a, there's a reset within, there's like, oh, it's, I'm reading these, these CVE descriptions here. Yeah. This is really interesting stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, to compare it to like you know a, a regular ping flood in in a regular denial of service, we'd just send a whole bunch of, of actual ping traffic. But here, everything is constrained within inside of HTTP two. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess the good news here is this: this isn't a situation where you're getting malware on your website mm -hmm. or something's being injected. This is really just you know you're overloaded for the time that the flood happens mm -hmm. and. Once you put in a patch, you can, you know, but you're not going to lose anything. You're not going to, nothing's worming. No, but if someone uses these sorts of attacks against you and you do have a site using HTTP2, you could go down. Right. I mean, that means I mean, that, that's true. And people could use that as an extortion uh, technique against you and say, I'll stop sending yeah. traffic when you start sending me money, you know. Right, or loss of revenue while you're down. Absolutely. You know, yeah. if you've got some important opening kind of thing, you're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely, it, it's, it's the possibilities are not great. So. Yeah. I'm curious to see how many of these are um, 
like low bandwidth attacks because you know yeah. the fewer packets you actually have to send in a DDoS, the more effective you're going to be. So if you yeah, can I think there's like about half and half, half are yeah. low bandwidth and half are more manual. Okay, because so. yeah, I mean, if if it doesn't take a large amount of machines to affect a DDoS attack against your site, then that's a real dangerous bug yeah. to have on your site. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you you already mentioned, you know, the the more options you give a client to affect the server. You know, the more complicated implementation, the more you open yourself up for uh, for issues like this where you're going to overload the server. Uh, what I found interesting, um, I think one of the comments maybe from the write-up in Netflix was, you know, the RFC for HTTP2 uh, was kind of vague in some of the implementation details, um, you know, that, that would lead to this abnormal behavior, right? So, you know, some of those RFCs are, are really long. I've never read a full RFC, um, and, you know, it's it's – they're sometimes a little bit vague when they talk about specific implementation, which is why you see all these different implementations from all these different vendors you know, susceptible to, to the same issues. All right. What do you think? Um, how does this affect most people and what should they do about it? I mean, I think uh, check for this vendor list where patches are available, patch, and uh, you know, be kind of more aware of when things get more complex. The possibility for them being less secure is definitely there. If you're someone who maintains code, that uses HTTP2, be aware of it. If you're somebody who has like an Apache server or any of the, the software stacks that have been identified as affected by this bug or this set of bugs, go out and patch your stuff. Uh, and if you're a developer um, who happens to work on HTTP2 itself or someone who works on the standard, then uh, you're probably going to have a pretty busy week, if not month, if not longer, um, thinking about how to make this protocol a little more uh, resilient to DDoS attacks. Let's take a look at this week's internet weather. So this is the most probed ports for the last week. Uh, I guess I've been away from the show for a little while, but 443 is apparently in first place, and that was the same way it was last week. Uh, followed by, uh, so first 443 is um, HTTPS. Uh, 23 TCP is in second, and that's Telnet. 445 is SMB, that's third. 22 TCP is SSH, and fourth. 80 ICMP is just plain old ping. Uh, 81 TCP is an alternate web port, but we've seen it with certain web vulnerabilities in IoT devices. 8089 is up nine spots, which is quite something. Uh, typically, we associate that with Splunk, but um, there's probably at least a few more things that use that port. 8080 is another web port that, again, is up five. Our 3389 TCP is down by three. That's remote desktop protocol. And 8545 is in 10th. That is Ethereum GF daemon. So take a look at the most sources probing. Again, this is individual sources and not volume of traffic. Uh, the top four have not changed this week. 445, 23, 80, and 8080. 8080, again, being another alternate web port. 443 is up four slots. It's in fifth. Uh, 5431, I believe, is a, a Broadcom UPnP port. I'm pretty sure that's the case. Uh, 80 ICMP, 22, we've seen before. Uh, 1433 is um, Microsoft SQL Server, I believe. So number nine, 1433 TCP, that is MS SQL Server, and then 8291 is specific to Microtik routers. Taking a look at 445 TCP, uh, that's SMB, that's been in the top 10 for the longest time. You can see a 365 day view here. Um, you can see it's been trending down over the last year. I think it really hit its peak during WannaCry. Right. You can see in the last month or so, though, it is starting to creep back up a little mm. bit. The cause for that on a, at this point is unknown. Uh, scan sources on port 443 TCP, HTTPS. 
Uh, and you, we know that that one's at, in the top place this week. Yeah. Uh, and in the last month or so, we've seen some concentrated scanning. Uh, most of the sources for those are in Brazil, U.S., and the Netherlands in like um, in like VPS hosting providers. Okay. So whether or not it's research right. or attacks at this point, it's unclear. Uh, scan flows on port 23 TCP. You can see for the most part in the last 30 days, it's stayed the same with a couple of spikes. Those spikes are typically in the US or Brazil. Not necessarily the same sources as uh, in 443, but also scanning sources in those two countries. So 1889 TCP, which we've been calling Splunk, has actually seen a, a number of spikes in the last month or so. Again, US and Brazil. I'm not sure what it is, but it yeah. seems like Brazil has sort of woken up in the last couple of days yeah. and is starting to do some serious scanning. So uh, that's something to keep an eye on. I'm not sure exactly what that represents There's yet. something about the hosting in that. It might be, yeah. or it might be that someone's spun up some sort of new scanning effort, either research or right. malicious, uh, and is just looking for new stuff. Who knows? Uh, this one did not make it to the top 10, but it made it to a list of anomalies, so I figured I'd take a look at it. Uh, 5683 UDP, uh, COAP, Constrained Application Protocol. It's like a data transfer protocol specific to low-power devices, and typically that means IoT. Did a little bit of reading on it. Um, there was an interesting talk from last year. Um, it sort of falls into the same realm as, um, as like a MQTT or okay. other like lightweight protocols that you see a lot in IoT devices. Um, but not only were there a couple of vulnerabilities, like a handful of them, um, it's also possible that people are interested in this for amplification attacks, because with UDP you can spoof the source, so you could use these as amplification points, send a bunch of spoof traffic right. to them, and the, the larger response goes back to your actual target. So that's possible as well. Uh, sources here, there's only a few of them, and they all seem to be in the Netherlands. Uh, 8080 I figured I'd put up because it did jump a few spots. Uh, yeah. That's, again, alternate web port, and there are a couple IoT devices that have vulnerabilities. And you can see in the last month-ish, um, the baseline has definitely risen. Yeah. It's always been kind of spiky from what we can see, uh, but that baseline's up a bit. Seeing more and more of the scanning and botnet activities associated with sort of new vectors in IoT. So. Um, you know, a lot of the internet weather is, stays pretty stable, but you know, the, the weather did, this week did show uh, a new IoT port that uh, is coming into, into scope. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.